Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, October 1st. I'm Andrew Walworth. Well, it was a week packed with critical deadlines, which came and went. And as of this Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern, which is when we're recording this, we still are waiting to see if Congress will vote on President Biden's infrastructure plan or whether the whole thing gets kicked down the road for another day. We'll talk about that, and we'll also look at a new poll from Real Clear Opinion Research on American attitudes towards the military in the wake of the Afghan withdrawal. And we'll discuss the politics of Generation Z. Who are they? What do they believe? And how will COVID-19 shape their political views in the future? Joining me are Tom Bevan, co-founder and president of Real Clear Politics, Carl Cannon, Washington Bureau Chief, and John Del Volpe, head of polling for Real Clear Opinion Research and author of a brand new book called Fight, How Gen Z is Channeling Their Fear and Passion to Save America. So, Tom, uh, Nancy Pelosi said she wouldn't bring anything to the floor if she didn't have the votes. Uh, so far, she is a woman of her word. Uh, but bring us up to date. Where are we on this and uh, what happens next? <laughs> well, uh, whatever I say is probably going to be out of date in within minutes. Uh, that's how fast things are sort of moving on Capitol Hill. Uh, it is obviously a struggle, a real struggle for Nancy Pelosi uh, to try and get this uh, infrastructure bill voted on and to get to some sort of consensus on on the reconciliation bill, which still, you know, is at 3.5 trillion, but I, I think most people agree it's not going to be that. So I, I don't know uh, how this all works out. I mean, I think I still find it hard to believe they wouldn't pass at least the hard infrastructure bill and where that leaves the, the reconciliation bill remains to be seen. But look, passing legislation, particularly big legislation is hard. And we've talked about before, whenever party has tried something like this. They, they've either had huge majorities in both chambers or they've had broad bipartisan support across. They do not have that for this, at least on the second piece of it. And the majorities that they have in the House are so slim and in the Senate, literally nothing, that it is doubly, triply hard, I think, uh, to, to try and get this thing over the finish line. And Pelosi and Biden have been working very hard to get there. They haven't been able to get there so far. They still may not get there in the end. I mean, I think there's still a chance that that this thing, you know, blows up. But the first deadline that was set on Monday for the vote, second deadline, they've blown past both of those and because they, they just don't have the votes right now. And so that's where we are. And we'll see whether I owe Carl Cannon wine or not. <laughs> Although there has been a wrinkle in this because I had told Carl, if it gets voted down, that's it. He owes me wine. He said, no. <laughs> he, they have until the end of the year. They can come back with something, and but I maintain if there's a vote taken and it fails, wine ages wine. well, Tom. It really doesn't matter. <laughs> this is the bet between Carl and Tom, a uh, couple of bottles of wine on whether there will be an infrastructure vote or not, or or whether it'll pass or not. Carl is on the affirmative. Tom is on the negative. Sanders. Uh, tweeted out this morning, Senator Sanders, two senators cannot be allowed to defeat what 48 senators and 210 House members want. We must delay passing the infrastructure bill until we pass a strong reconciliation bill. Uh, that's a, that's this morning. So, Well, that, that's the latest stink bomb. But let, you know, let's take a step back because what I see this somewhat differently. And, I, and, and, and this is not a partisan point I'm about to make because I felt the same way when John Boehner was Speaker of the House. 
So Boehner had these various bills, legislation, budgets that had popular support uh, and he couldn't get passed. Why couldn't they get passed? Because the Freedom Caucus voted no. Well, okay. So what did that mean? Because the Freedom Caucus had, you know, 20, 30 members, whatever it had, uh, uh, hardcore people. That meant the most conservative people in the House, the the far right people, the people who thought John Boehner was insufficiently conservative, people who think George Bush is a dangerous liberal. These people conspired to vote with the Democrat, with, with the Democrats, the Pelosi's Unified Caucus. In other words, who was running the House when John Boehner uh, was having so much trouble? A combination of of right wing people and the Democrats. Now you have the reverse. Uh, I don't know why the Republicans are not are given a pass on this. You telling me there aren't thirty or forty Republicans in the House who'd like to see infrastructure? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. And out of you know a couple of hundred. It's been reported, and the whole narrative has been the Democrats are are not unified. You know, Pelosi and Biden have problems. I think the bigger story is that Congress no longer works, and you're just not allowed to, to cast votes based on principle. And and the parties, this is what the two parties have done at a time in history, by the way, when they're each moving far to the left and right, respectively. So at a time when centrists should have more say because they re- better reflect the American people, they have less say. What's going on in the budget, let's make no mistake, is the the socialist and far left people uh, on Pelosi's left are voting identically with the Republicans. And these two groups have decided they're, for their own purposes, um, they're going to thwart an agenda that polls very well, that is popular with the people, that would help the president, that would help, would create jobs, that would provide needed infrastructure. So it's pretty disgusting, really. And I'm not saying that as a person who's yet conceding that I've lost this bet to my friend Tom Bevan. I'll feel this way even if I win the bet. This is this is just not the way Congress is supposed to work. And it hasn't been for, for 20 years. Well, John Delavolpe, you were shaking your head. I'm not ready to say that Congress uh, isn't working, but I do like the analogy, I think, with the Freedom Caucus, with the Progressive Caucus. Right. Um, which has about 100 members is about 10 percent bigger than it was a handful of years ago. And it's a it's a diverse group of, of members, including, you know, uh, the, um, the co-chairs is um, is from Wisconsin, where I am now thinking about sausage making. I'm in Milwaukee right now taping this. Um, but I, I do think that it's a it's the beginning of a look into the next decade or so in Congress. OK, the way I'm looking at this is you've got a progressive caucus, which is which has learned lessons, frankly, from the Freedom Caucus, which is representing, I would argue, not a leftist or socialist agenda, but an agenda, frankly, that is uh, po- popular among um, mainstream American when we think about the Build Back Agenda caucus uh, uh, agenda challenged by the old America, challenged by Senator Manchin in West Virginia, and he's standing up for that state's values. So you actually have the beginning, I think, of a generational struggle that we will be watching in Congress for the decade or so to come. You've got a a small group, very, very, very small group of of moderate conservative Democrats doing their job, standing up for their constituents um, against a, a, frankly, a larger group of uh, more diverse Democrats who are standing up for their constituents. It's a battle of, of the ages. Tom, you see it that way? Yeah, I think there's something to that. Sure. I mean, look, everybody, I know Carl would like everybody to, you know, join hands and 
and sing Kumbaya, Kumbaya. my lord, right? Um, But that's that's not the world that we live in. Uh, It hasn't been, as Carl mentioned, for some time. And and there's no question that Congress is more polarized, right? And we have, you know, people like to blame it on gerrymandering, but it's not just gerrymandering. I mean, the Senate is not gerrymandered, but those, you know, Republican senators have gotten more conservative, liberal senators or Democratic senators have gotten more liberal. This is a trend that's been going on in our society for the better part of 40 years. It's interesting for Bernie Sanders to say, well, two senators can't hold. Well, yeah, actually they can. When you've only got 50 senators, get yourself some more senators then, you know, elect yourself some more senators. When you have a 50-50 Senate, two senators, one senator, they can hold up the entire thing. That is how the Senate works. Joe Manchin is standing up for what he believes his constituents want and what they're voting, you know, what they voted him into office for, just like Elizabeth Warren is standing up for what she thinks her constituents want. So that is the way it works. It is not pretty. It has gotten dysfunctional. There's no question. But we are where we are. And again, I think the Democrats have put all their chips on the table to pass this huge agenda when the country is evenly divided and when their majorities are so slim. People are arguing, well, it's going to, you know, if they pass it, it's going to cost them their majorities. And other people are arguing, well, if they don't pass it, they're going to lose their majorities anyway, certainly in the House and maybe in the Senate as well. So this is their only shot to try and get something like this through. So they're going to do whatever they they can or whatever they have to. And we'll see whether it works or not. And we'll see if they, in fact, pay a political price. I think that's as yet undetermined. It will depend on what this agenda, how it manifests to the American public on a day-to-day basis. If it continues to drive inflation and people go to the polls next November and gas still costs more and food still costs more, I think Democrats are going to get thumped. We could talk about this all day. This may be all out of date. As we say, this this thing may have passed or gone down by the time we get off this podcast. But uh, let's talk about this uh, poll for a second. We did a poll at Real Clear Opinion Research. It was on Americans' attitudes towards defense. This was done in the wake of the Afghan pullout. Carl, let me go to you first on this then. What did we learn and what are Americans thinking about defense? Well, the poll, and I I urge people, even though we take time on this Friday podcast, but the the numbers are really interesting. And, And John Della Volpe and his team did a terrific job going deeply into it. So I'd urge people to go to our website and find it. It, it ran yesterday. It's easy to find. And, and as always, I'll remind people, our content is free. But th- this is interesting because we, at the time, you've got Afghanistan failing, the military quitting the country, uh, the Taliban taking over before they could even get everybody out, terrorist attack killing 13 Marines and soldiers, people falling off airplanes trying to get out, it, it, just this calamity of an exit. Uh, how do people feel about the military? Pretty interesting. We we gave people a choice, the support for missions and the roles of the military. And it wasn't open-ended. We, 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 we listed actually six choices, protecting human rights, uh, like the rights of women, children, religious, ethnic majorities was one. Uh, and they went all the way to defending Taiwan or, or, or South Korea. By the way, three out of five Americans would support Taiwan in the face of attack of China. Uh, and and Korea, Korea was a little stronger. Building infrastructure, political infrastructure after a war, you know, nation building, even that was a majority in both parties and among independents. But the highest was protecting human rights, like the rights of women, children, religious, ethnic minorities, 82% and, and overwhelming, 86% Democrats, 81% Republicans, 79% independents. So there's a consensus there. The problem is you're looking at this poll is there's a tension between our heart and our mind because- Support for leaving Afghanistan, even after this disaster, is still a majority opinion. And, and the mission had devolved into from, you know, originally 
destroying al-Qaeda and making the Taliban heal uh, to looking for Osama bin Laden. But in the last 10 years, it has been protecting human rights, like the rights of women, children, religious, ethnic minorities. And yet Americans are tired of it. So there's a limit to our patience. We're not always willing to see it through, especially something that seemed open-ended. I'll, I'll hit a few highlights and then we can get a conversation going on. Young people uh, continue to be, as we've seen in these polls, young, the younger voters, markedly different than their elders. You know, if you're a young voter, you, you don't you don't even remember that Taiwan used to be called Formosa. You probably never heard of Chiang Kai-shek, you know, <laughs> defending Taiwan. Why? Where is Taiwan and why would we defend it? But older people who do remember this thing more solidly uh, and, and a series of things like that, critical race theory at the military academies, older people divided, not it's not overwhelming, but slightly against or about even Younger people, yeah, why not? That sounds right to them. That They've gone to college in which critical race theory is not a dirty word or a dirty phrase. The most obvious, I would say, is that young people are really four square against restoring the draft. Now, that's not a surprise. You know, young people will get drafted. So they're more against that than anyone else. So those are some of the highlights. The, I would say one other thing. Americans trust, they trust the military. The, que- the poll question was phrased was this, when it comes to making decisions about the U.S. military, how much do you trust the following institutions in the, and, and individuals to do the right things? The, the, the rank and file, the U.S. military troops, 74%, uh, Republicans even higher, 83%. Then military generals, well, then it starts to go down, <laughs> uh, 55%, 20% drop, the Pentagon even lower. Then you get to Joe Biden and Donald Trump. 39%. They're underwater. Uh, obviously, huge partisan uh, the partisan reversal. It's just the mirror image. Democrats in Congress, chairmen of the Joint Staff, Chief of Staff, Mark Milley, 34%. Barely a majority of Republicans, by, uh, of Democrats, by the way, only 51% of Democrats. You, you know, you start to get partisan politics into it. And if you start to see the military as an extension of one party or another, support goes down. You see the military for what it's usually, historically been in this country, nonpartisan, people still trust it very deeply. So those are some of the highlights. John, you did the poll. What, what did you take away from it? I echo Carl's insight, you know, which is we have the most support um, across party lines for the missions that I would argue would be kind of considered like soft power missions, you know, um, humanitarian assistance and um, in protecting the vulnerable. Um, and there's clear kind of agreement with that. But once we get into the current affairs of today, that's when we see kind of the partisanship um, uh, ring ring through. And um, it's 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 really, I think, kind of a shame, right, that uh, the military is becoming more partisan every single day. Of course, the troops, U.S. military troops, are trusted by overwhelming majorities of both parties, but that's about it. And we need to find a way to begin to talk, especially regarding our foreign policy, um, as, a, I think, a united nation across, across partisan lines. We see high levels of support among Democrats for withdrawing from Afghanistan. We saw high levels of Republicans for the same measure two years ago. You know, the only difference is who was who was who was in charge. So that's where things are, I think, today regarding the military. Tom? I thought the numbers on trust were really interesting and Carl referenced them, but if you dig a little deeper, sixty percent of Democrats trust the Pentagon. Only forty percent of Republicans and thirty nine percent of independents. That's a pretty dramatic shift from where, you know, when did that happen? The Democrats now trust the Pentagon. 
Democrats are also way more trusting of their own members of Congress. Two-thirds, 67%. And guess what? Only 55% of Republicans have trust in the Republicans in Congress for making decisions about the military. And that shows you that I think there's a legacy there regarding the last 20 years of George W. Bush, sort of interventionism, foreign policy, um, that uh, is is pretty stark. So I think those numbers were were what jumped out at me. I was looking at those trust numbers as well, and I, what struck me were the low numbers for Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, who's a retired four-star general, and Joint Chief of Staff General Mark Milley, another military man, obviously. Both of them had a 34% approval rating, which put them below Donald Trump and right in line with Democrats in Congress. Uh, the only people who did worse, or the only group that did worse, was congressional Republicans who were at 31%. John, I'm wondering, when you look at those numbers, um, that's a distrust of military leadership. Is that what we're seeing there? Or is that tied to sort of the recent news about Afghanistan and Millie uh, being pulled up on the hill and all that sort of stuff? I think there's a third factor of play, Andy, which is, Amer- you know, a lot of Americans just don't know who they are. Don't recognize a name. Don't know who they are, right? So what we're what we're looking at, you know, um, there's so many different ways to cut and slice this data. We were just looking at the top line numbers, but for Millie and for Austin, you have a, a quarter to a fifth of Americans just don't have enough information to have an opinion. So it's not necessarily that if you don't trust them, you distrust them. Is that you know far more just don't have an opinion compared to you know Democrats, Republicans, Trump, Biden, etc. Isn't that to say is that to know them is to distrust them? I mean, among the people <laughs> who know who they are, thirty four percent only thirty four percent trust them. It's not among the people who know who they are um, because we're including you know the quarter or so within that within that within that bucket. But those people who know them, know them as currently serving under one administration or the other administration, even though Milley was was appointed by by Trump. He's now obviously now a kind of a political, a political character based upon his points of view, I think, first on critical race theory and, and other things and where it's being played out in the in the media. Well, the well, the other thing is, I mean, let's not beat around the bush in Bob Woodward and, and, and Robert Costa's book. He's. He's having ex parte conversations with Nancy Pelosi, in which they're both calling President Trump, the commander in chief, crazy. And Millie is calling this Chinese counterpart and promising him to call him in, in the event of an attack on the United, the United States military attack on China, which which something Donald Trump never contemplated, as far as we know. So Millie's injected himself into the debate in a way that is going to lower his poll his approval rating and his trust level i i think austin's probably just collateral damage he's caught up in that he hasn't done anything wrong so the overall numbers overall numbers for both of them are are exact 34 uh trust 44 distrust okay so he's underwater both of them austin with 21 22 percent don't know compared to biden 38 50 39 57 Trump thirty nine fifty seven with only just that a couple of you know four percent don't know so underwater highly politicized I think for 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 many of the reasons that we just talked about Andy the other thing in that poll that that we thought was interesting and I, I'd be interested in what you think of it is that uh, you know we asked people the most formidable foreign adversary and open ended they said twenty eight percent said China uh, there was a big Partisan gap there. Republicans are two to one more likely to say that than Democrats. But that was the first. And then 
terrorist groups like ISIS or Al-Qaeda, then the Taliban. If you add those two together, Taliban and terrorist groups, ISIS and Al-Qaeda, you get about 30%. So slightly higher in China, about China. And then the rest, Russia, cyber terrorists, North Korea, Iran, other. Um, But when John asked people, do you feel the primary threat is domestic or foreign? 58% said domestic, only 42% said foreign. So that was a striking finding as well, I thought. Yeah. Tom, what what about nation building and all this? You're not a big nation building fan. I mean, but there did seem to be support for, uh, you know, humanitarian uh, missions, that sort of thing. I think there is on a limited basis, right? When there are tsunamis and earthquakes and the U.S. military is one of the only organizations in the world that is has enough manpower and equipment to provide assistance, much needed emergency assistance, I think the American public are fine with that. Now, I'm sure there are some people who think that's not the job of the military, but I think by and large, the public supports those kinds of things. Well, three quarters of people in our poll said yes. Right. So it's pretty overwhelming majority, but, um, you know, that's, that's completely different than the idea as espoused by the George W. Bush administration of spreading democracy around the globe and trying to stand up democratic governments in places like Afghanistan and Iraq and, and that, and, and spending, you know, blood and treasure to do so. So I think that policy has been, I was going to say discredited. That might be too strong of a word, but certainly has fallen out of favor given the last 20 years uh, of of Americans' experience. So I don't think there's any question about that. Will it come back? I mean, is there, a, you know, 20 years from now, will people maybe be supportive of a president who says, look, we got to invade North Korea and make it a democratic republic like South Korea? Maybe, but at least for the time being, I think uh, people aren't going to be supportive of that, even at, even as they are supportive of the of the military doing humanitarian missions and efforts around the world. Well, let's uh, switch to democracy here and talk about Gen Z. Uh, John, you got this new book, highly recommend it to people. Um, Gen Z, these are people born, I guess, around the turn of the century. You can tell us more. You, you know, you paint a pretty bleak picture of the era in which they've grown up. Your title references their fear. So what are they afraid of? And given all this, why are you optimistic about their prospects? Thanks, Andy. And um, why it matters first is in the next presidential election 2024, we'll see uh, about 40% of all votes coming from Gen Z and uh, the millennial generation. And overall, their politics looks very, very similar. Their values, their perspective is very similar. So it is a very, very significant size kind of voting block. I argue in the book that this generation, I think of it as, you know, teenagers and, and young people in their early to mid 20s, right? Most of the youth vote uh, have grown up and have endured more adversity than any generation in many decades, at least, you know, 50, if not 70, 70 years. To give you a sense of um, just a reminder of that, you know, this is a generation, you know, that um, has has uh, has dealt with a, a school shootings, uh, uh, an economy that makes it difficult to afford college where there's a, a, a growing gap um, around um, inequalities. They see recession, 
uh, obviously kind of COVID and the impact that is having. Um, and, and we can see now the, obviously the, the political crises and questions of our uh, democracy. So these are the, the public facing weights that they've been carrying. In addition to that, there's been a lot of news in the, uh, over the last uh, several weeks about the additional stresses that social media um, has created. And what psychologists and, and psychiatrists are finding is that a majority of 18 to 29-year-olds have um, depressive symptoms that require medical treatments when we look at a series of metrics that folks use. So this is um, a highly anxious, stressed out, and depressed generation. We've seen, uh, uh, sadly, you know, an, uh, a doubling of the number of uh, youth suicides of 10 to 24-year-olds um, beyond statistics that 7,000 families in America who lose, lose a child. So this is an increasing amount of stress, anxiety, depression, um, one, not helped at all by the, by the uh, turmoil in our politics. That's what this generation is growing up with. But early indications are that when, when offered the ability to either kind of retreat or step in and fight, they are, they're, they're, they're fighting, right? They're stepping up, they're organizing, they're voting, as we've talked about in this podcast before, and record numbers in 18 as well as in 20. And I argue that perhaps part of even their therapy, you know, to feel better about their mental health, they're choosing to engage um, in politics to really try to solve some of the uh, insurmountable challenges that other generations have faced, you know, most focused on the economy, economic justice, on, on race uh, and uh, on climate in particular. Well, Tom, I know you've got a couple Gen Z kids in your immediate orbit. Does this all sound true to you or what do you think? Oh, yeah, um, definitely. Having a Gen Zer in the family, I can, I can attest to pretty much everything that John has said. Although I'm curious, though, because as, we, as we've, we've heard, this is the most liberal generation, right, that's coming into being. I'm watching all of these football stadiums chant F Joe Biden. And I'm wondering, what is that all about? And is there, is it really as cut and dried? Obviously they turned out against Donald Trump, but how much of it was for Joe Biden? How much does he represent the democratic party? And could that potentially be something that, you know, Republicans could, could make some inroads with depending on how this, this next couple of years go. It's a great question. And, you know, when, when millennials voted for the first time, they were split evenly for Bush versus Gore, right? Like like the rest of America, right? So back in those days, there there is you know we could never assume that just because you're young in a millennial that you you know you were going to kind of vote for for Democrats. In fact, Democrats took them for Democrats took them for granted, um, specifically Hillary Clinton in 2016. Um, if Joe Biden and other Democrats take them for granted in 22 and 24 and moving forward, um, there is plenty, I think, of flexibility uh, available um, within this cohort to um, to boost Republican chances, Tom, right? For a Democrat to win nationally, um, they need to get to about 60% support among 18 to 29-year-olds, right? Um, Hillary Clinton got to 55%. John Kerry got to 55%. So it's only a 50. It, that's kind of where that difference is. Now, the question is, um, I thought Mitt Romney could have done a better job with young people. I thought George Bush um, could have done even a better job with young people. Um, the question is really, I think, I was up to the Republican Party. If they choose 
to recognize some of the fears um, that young people have in their uh, overall sense of of, uh, of of unhappiness, even with you know with modern capitalism, if they're able to find some areas of, of commonality, then I think they could make some inroads. I don't think the Trump Republicans can do that, but I do think there's opportunity for a modern Republican Party if they choose to evolve like a Baker or a Hogan to potentially make some inroads. But wait, what about the the I am curious about this F. Joe Biden stuff because my kids who are in this cohort, one of them, one of them had COVID. Okay. So he has natural immunity and does not want to take the vaccine and is feeling very put upon by all the, you know, government mandates that are coming down on high. My other child is vaccinated, um, but was also, you know, uh, felt pretty chafed by some of the restrictions that were put in place. And, and, you know, I know kids that age all think they're going to live forever and they're invincible and all of those things, but how much of that, um, these, these mandates that are coming down and any continued restrictions around COVID might engender some sort of backlash against, you know, by, by these Gen Zers who think, you know, Hey, listen, I'm vaccinated. Why can't I go to football games and concerts and, you know, all the like, um, that to me seems like it could be a potential issue. It could be. We know that younger people um, were among you know, the least likely, right, to, to, to get vaccinated. But I also think that young people in particular, one of, the, one of the, the values I think they have is their concern for the most vulnerable. And I think I'm sure that we can choose a couple of scenes from across America, you know, when a crowd um, starts to chant something and, and those sorts of things. But I think fundamentally that this generation's values align pretty neatly, frankly, with Biden's values, specifically ar- around helping the vulnerable, trying to kind of abridge the divides um, around, around the economy, offering up an opportunity to basically kind of live live your best life. I talk a lot in the book in terms of uh, what we can expect in the in the future in terms of some predictions and some projections. And I think that because of the economic stress and all the other stresses around education, that young people can have a very different perspective on what it means to be happy and what it means to be to live the American dream. And I think that there are a lot of companies that are responding to this. I think there are a lot of elected officials who are responding to this and we don't all, we don't have to you know, I think the more that we listen and appreciate the very unique circumstances that, you know, 50 to 70 million Americans are coming of age, um, it's just going to, it's going to, again, I think, be helpful for all of us moving forward because soon enough, we'll all be working for them. <laughs> Carl, you looking forward to working for a millennial or you think, uh, or a Gen Zer? <laughs> well, you know, I have two millennial children and a Gen Zer, so I've actually been working for, them for some time. <laughs> um, you know, when when Bud Seeley was baseball commissioner, I used to when you give a public speech, John and Tom and I, Andy, you've done we've all done it. You you like to start out with a, a joke or but I would frequently say that, you know, as long as gerrymandering wasn't the worst problem in America because Bud Seeley was baseball commissioner. Well, he's long gone and people don't remember him so much anymore. Um, but now I would say, or I would have said, till John wrote this book, which I was lucky enough 
to read in galleys, I would have said that uh, the, the the worst problem in the country, where when the country started going downhill, was participation trophies, and that this ruined two generations of Americans, and we produced, you know, whining snowflakes who the highest thing they could do is come up with some I, some reason why they were victims. However, having read this book, and the book is called Fight, How Gen Z is Channeling Their Fear and Passion to Save America by John Delavope. Having read this book, I am now more optimistic than I was before, and I would encourage all of our listeners to buy the book and read it and to give it to some baby boom curmudgeon. <laughs> As a Christmas present. Are you in favor of participation trophies now, Carl? Is that? I've moved to agnostic. <laughs> By the way, right? Who was the one giving those particip- participation trophies? Boomers. Stupid baby boomers. boomers. Did, right? <laughs> it's our to fa- make you feel so, better. It's our fault. Right? No yeah, question. Okay, okay boomer. Is that what it is? <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, this was a great discussion. And I wish we had more time to talk about Gen Z. I think this is a fascinating conversation. Maybe, maybe we'll come back to it later. So I look forward to uh, diving deeper into the book. Again, it's called Fight, How Gen Z is Channeling Their Fear and Passion to Save America. Uh, author John Del Volpe, our guest today. So I want to thank uh, Tom Babin, Carl Cannon, and John. We're usually here Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays in some form or fashion. Bookmark this podcast. Check back often. As always, I encourage you to go to Real Clear Politics, read one article from a writer or publication with whom you disagree. That may be Carl Cannon this week. Maybe Tom Babin, who spent time with President Trump, or maybe John Del Volpe. Uh, could be all three. Also encourage you to subscribe to Carl Cannon's Morning Note. It's a free newsletter. It arrives in your inbox every day. You can get it by just going to realclearpolitics.com, signing up. I can't start my day without it. You shouldn't either. Thank you for listening. Until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walworth. <laughs>